Well, good morning, church. It is good to see uh, the wise ones here this morning who aren't on the freeways and airplanes on this uh, Labor Day weekend uh, with the crowds. I don't know if you have memories of being on I-80 surrounded by Burning Man vehicles that are maybe more interesting to look at than uh, whatever you did on Labor Day weekend. But anyway, it is uh, good to be with you, and it is good to be uh, home today. Uh, and how about this weather? Um, our small, yeah, our small group Friday night sat around a fire <laughs> outside. I mean, when we talk about fires this time of year, it's not usually a joyful thing to sit around and be warm. Uh, thank uh, God for this weather um, the last few days. Well, if you're like me, you have many memories over the years, maybe even over the decades, of listening to sermon series that have gone through books of the Bible. And there are uh, mostly the details of sermons, let's be honest, we forget. But there are things that stay with you. And maybe even right now, you're thinking of a series from some year or decade or two or whatever uh, ago where God did something in your life through a series that you, you take with you, the study of his word. And for me, one of the things in my study of First and Second Samuel in these recent months and year or so uh, that, that is staying with me is the importance of Christian friendship as described in this perhaps the most powerful, most preeminent friendship between two men in Scripture, the friendship of Jonathan and David. We have other examples uh, in the book of Ruth, Ruth and Naomi, but one of the things that is going to stay with me from the books of First and Second Samuel is this incredible friendship of Jonathan and David. Now in our chronology, as we have been going through First and Second Samuel, uh, Jonathan has been gone for some time. He, he died. But the ripple effects of that friendship uh, come into 2 Samuel 9. This chapter is a ripple effect from David and Jonathan's friendship, where there were promises made in that friendship. And the, the vow or promise that they made to one another went beyond death. Beyond death. I have uh, vows in front of me, traditional wedding vows. I'm not going to read it all. I have it all in front of me, but I'm just going to read that phrase. You all know it. I don't need to look at it, but I'm looking at it. Until death do us part. Jonathan and David made a promise to one another, or especially David did to Jonathan, that actually went beyond death. Now, I don't know that I'm ever going to have a friendship with another man at the level and depth that Jonathan and David experience, but I know that God's will for me, and I think almost certainly for you, is to grow in your aspiration and in your desire to have a close Christian friendship, man to man, woman to woman. And this chapter, again, is a ripple effect from that incredible friendship that we looked at so many weeks, so many chapters ago. Now, let's look at the vow or the promise uh, 
that was made that brings us, that connects, if you will, to chapter 9. Look with me um, on the screen at 1 Samuel chapter 20. Uh, Jonathan here is speaking to David. And he says uh, to David, his closest friend, his covenantal friend, his friend where their relationship with God is at the very center of, of their intimate and close friendship. And Jonathan says to David, you shall not cut off your loving kindness or God's kindness, this extraordinary kindness. You shall not cut it off from my house forever. Now the NASB and, and Curtis read from the ESV translates this house, which is a very accurate and literal interpretation. But are we talking about a house here? Say no. This isn't literal. We're not talking about a house, a physical house. We're talking about descendants. So you could translate this, David, you know, you could paraphrase this. Jonathan is saying, David, don't cut off your, your, your hesed, your God-centered kindness from my descendants. Don't do it. That is what was typical when you had competing families for a kingdom in the ancient Near East, that the family who ascended to the throne would destroy, literally kill, all the members of the other family, so that the dynasty of this family would remain as king. So he's saying, he's not even dealing with, with slaughter or murder, he's saying, don't cut off that loving kindness, that God-centered love. Um, from any of my descendants, not even when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And that's essentially what happened in last week's chapter. The borders of Israel in 2 Samuel chapter 8 finally got to what God described them to be. And many of the enemies of David and, and the nation of Israel have been destroyed. And David is reigning. He's near the top of his game. And, and here he, back in 1 Samuel 20, there is this promise, this covenant between them. Don't cut off your loving kindness from my descendants. And then at the end, uh, verse 17 of 1 Samuel 20 says, Jonathan made David vow again. Repeat this vow. Repeat this promise because of his love for him, because of their love for one another, because he loved him as he loved his own life. This was an extraordinary friendship between these two men. He's been gone for some time. There was this promise made that there would be God's kindness shown to the descendants, not to his physical house, but to his children or grandchildren or great-grandchildren or whoever it's going to be, that you will show your kindness to them. So that brings us to our text for today. So hopefully you have your Bibles open, and we're going to go through these 13 verses of first, Second Samuel rather, uh, chapter 9. By the way, before we look at the first three verses, let me just remind you again that David um, has been on a rise. And when I say his life, his decades of being on the rise, of ascending, he has been very close to God. There's been a few bumps along the road, but in general, David is, is doing really, really well. He's done well in warfare, in establishing the kingdom of God in territory. He has done well in his personal walk with God. He has done well in his relationships. And we finally come to 2 Samuel 9, where he makes good on a promise or a vow that he made a long time ago. So with that, let's look at verses 1 through 3, 2 Samuel 9. 
So picture here, use your imagination. David is in the palace. His life is, this is, this or next chapter is, is at the very peak of his life before there's major downfall. And David asks this question. He says, is there, is there anyone still left, verse 1, of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness, to whom I can show hesed is the Hebrew word here. It is this loving kindness, this God-centered, supernatural, extraordinary kind of love. Is there anyone, any of his descendants, any of his family that I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? David has realized and remembered this promise And the reality is, the reader knows David hasn't acted on this promise. He doesn't even know if there's any descendants around. Is there any of this family remaining? Verse 2, now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. So Ziba would be like the executor of the estate, but he's more than the executor who gets things in order and maybe takes a few weeks or a few months in our culture, in our world. But this is a king's estate, so it's a lifetime appointment. So Ziba is, is, if you will, the executor. And they they called him. He comes before David. He comes into the palace. He comes before David in Jerusalem, the king of Israel. And the king says to him, are you Ziba? (laughs) Your servant, he replied. The king asked, is there no one still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness, God's hesed? So I'm going to use that phrase, the word Kindness or hesed or however your Bible translates it used three times in this chapter, it is, it is really central to this chapter. Is there anyone left? I made this promise so many decades ago and he's finally remembering it. Ziba, Ziba answered the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. So your, your close friend, your intimate brother, he's grieved him being gone. There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in both feet. It's interesting how central that description of him is, both here and, and earlier in the books of First and Second Samuel. He, he's crippled in both feet. There is someone. There is someone. And no one knows uh, other than Ziba who he is or where he is or, or, or if he exists. Now, we have been introduced to him. If we have... Uh, I won't ask, put you on the spot. I doubt anybody has this from memory. But if, if we have any honor students among us, they might remember way back in 2 Samuel chapter 4. Um, Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. That is the news about their deaths. His nurse picked him up and fled But as she hurried to leave, he fell and became crippled. His name was Mephibosheth. So David remembers this promise finally. He's got the palace built. He wanted to build a house for the Ark of the Covenant. God said, no, thank you. I don't want you to do that. He's expanded the territory of Israel. He's gotten rid rid of, through military conquest, the enemies of Israel. And he realizes, I've made this promise And the reader, the careful reader of the text, realizes he hasn't kept this promise, but he has now remembered this promise, and he wants to keep this promise. This is a vow beyond 
till death do us part. And what God wants us to see, one of the things he wants us to see in this passage, I mean, I say something like this almost every week, and, and here it comes again. Like, it's, it's helpful on one degree. If I had stopped, a, uh, you know, we've been in First and Second Samuel, but if I stopped a Christian on the street from another church in Auburn and I asked them who Mephibosheth was, they probably wouldn't know who Mephibosheth was. There's a certain value in knowing who Mephibosheth is. We're all struggling up here today, aren't we, with uh, different things. Um, let, me, let me look at uh, his name. Um, I'm not even going to look at his name. The details of people, of years, are of limited value, the knowledge of that. But what is of really important value for you and me is to see that David is keeping his promise. And so the careful reader of the scripture here is not going to be so concerned about how to pronounce Mephibosheth or who he is. But the careful reader of scripture here is going to be thinking, have I made promises? Have I made promises? And if so, God wants me to keep those promises. Vows made before God should be kept. He wants us to keep them. And in this particular case, it's been a long time since this promise has been made. And so one of the things that we see here is that it better late than never. Promises kept late are better late than never. This is what David is doing. I mean, if you think about your life, if I think about my life, what sorts of promises have you made? They may not be quite so grand as this vow that is beyond till death do us part that David made to Jonathan. But I could imagine you or me saying something very simple uh, like, hey, I, I, I will call you. I, I, I want to have a coffee with you. I, I, I want to have lunch with you this week. Or I'm going to reach out to that person. You, you, someone tells you about some person and, and, and you know that they... They've gone through a difficult time. They're struggling, whatever. You haven't seen them in a while. I'm going to reach out to them. I'm going to make time for them. And you say that, and you don't follow through. I will pray for you. I will have you over for dinner. I will reach out to her. If you have made promises and you haven't kept them and the Lord is bringing them, what I'm saying, church, is that the word of God is not only to be read, but it is designed to read our hearts. And we see David here is going, I made a promise and I haven't kept it and it is within my ability to keep it. Where is this person? Is there anybody out there that's a descendant of Jonathan? I made a promise that I would show loving kindness, God-centered, radical love to any one of his family who remains after I put all of the enemies of Israel away, that I will do this. And he does it. Vows kept late are better late than never. There are times when we can't keep a promise that we made. There are times when we make a promise, we make a vow, and we can't fulfill it. I don't want to spend much time, we're going to be there soon, where David moves far away from God. And, and that, uh, 
that, that, that chart that has been looking like this for so long, the chart that you see on the screen is going to take a radical turn uh, in, in David's life. And we're going to see this in chapter 11. And one of the promises that David makes, it's not a big covenantal promise like what he said to Jonathan, but one of the promises that he makes is uh, to Uriah. And Uriah, many of you are familiar with the story. I'm not going to go into the story. You don't need to know the whole story of 2 Samuel 11. But Uriah is a fellow soldier. David is the commander-in-chief, and he is a warrior as well. And there is a war going on. And, and when you're a soldier and there is a war going on, where do you want to be? You want to be in the battlefield. And Uriah wants to be in the battlefield. And David says to him, I, I, I will send you back. And does David send him back? Say no. He doesn't. He actually gets him drunk and sends him home. He doesn't send him back to the battlefield. David doesn't keep his promise. Why am I talking about this right now? We've got plenty of time to talk about it when I'm going to preaching it. The reason I'm talking about it is because we want the word of God to apply to us. We want the word of God to read us. We don't just want to read us. So the careful reader of the scripture here who wants to be transformed by God might be saying, you know, I've made promises, I've made vows, and I can't keep them. I broke them. I can't keep them. So what do I do? If you made a vow, you made a promise that you can't keep. Well, what did David do? We're jumping ahead, but what did he do? He repented. He repented. He couldn't keep the promise that he made to Uriah. And so he goes before God and he says, God, create in me a clean heart. You see, when we break promises, when we break vows... We feel miserable. We feel full of shame. The good news of the gospel, you know, plan A is make good on your vow. David doesn't know if Mephibosheth is alive or anyone is out there. So if he had learned, if Ziba had shown up and said, no, there's, there's nobody there, David could go before the Lord and repent. And God creates in us clean hearts. How does he do that? If you're here today and you have been feeling full of shame for some sin, maybe it was a broken promise, maybe it wasn't, you need to know that the power of the gospel, the mercy and grace of God can create in you a clean heart and make you free even if you can't fulfill the promise or the vow that you make and you broke. It is central to the Christian life, repenting and loving God because he has forgiven us and rejoicing in the forgiveness that we have in him, even when we have broken our promises, even when we can't make them right, like David is going to make his promise that he made to Jonathan so long ago right in this chapter. There's an incredible story in Luke chapter 7, many of you are familiar with this story, where the religious leaders, the pastors if you will, are, as is often the case, upset with Jesus. 
Is it good to be upset with Jesus? <laughs> it's not good to be upset with Jesus. They are upset with Jesus. Why are they upset with Jesus in Luke chapter 7? They are upset with Jesus because a woman of ill repute, a sinner, he has allowed her to touch him in a social setting, in a meal setting, in the home of a, of a pastor, if you will, of a religious leader, of a Pharisee. She has touched him. We know what this woman has done in her life. If this guy were a serious rabbi, if this guy were understanding the holiness of God, he wouldn't allow this woman to touch him. That's the spirit in the room. And so Jesus, who sees this spirit in the room among the pastors, among the religious leaders, he, he says this uh, to Peter, to Simon. He answers him. He says, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. So here he tells him, two men owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him, one owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? And you get the sense as you read Luke chapter 7 that everybody gets this before the answer is given. Everyone gets what? Everyone gets that this woman is loving Jesus. That she has found a cleanness in her heart and freedom in her life. Has she lived this way that these guys have said? She has. But she has repented and she has recognized that Jesus, the Messiah, loves her. And unlike other men, would allow her to touch him in a God-glorifying way to where she feels dignity. So Peter responds and says, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. She had a bigger debt canceled than the men in the room because the men can't even see their own debt. They're blind to their own sins. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. The good news of the gospel is that even if we can't keep our vows or make our promises, if there is uh, fulfill, make good on our promises, even if we're not promise keepers but promise breakers, even if Ziba had said, there is no one left of the house of Saul, that God can create in you a clean heart. He doesn't want you to live in shame. He wants you to live in freedom and joy and to love him more and more. So repentance, which is central to the Christian life, does not encourage shame. That's how the world views the church, right? Like they, we want to make everyone feel bad, and so we have this time of confession, and, and everybody feels bad, and if you feel bad enough, then maybe God will let you in, and you need to make yourself really miserable and do really nasty things, hard things, difficult things, and, and if you do enough of them, and you feel bad enough, that God will let you in. That is completely opposite of the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus wants to show outrageous, incredible, beautiful love to this woman and to move her from a place of shame to freedom. So repentance doesn't encourage shame. It eliminates it. It gets rid of it. We have to read 2 Samuel 9 in light of the gospel and in light of the new covenant. Repentance does not encourage shame. It 
eliminates it. Let's come back to our text now. So David has said, is there anybody out there? He's got the executor of the state, Ziba. He said, yeah, there, there, is, a, there is a dude, and he, he's crippled in both feet. Verse 4, where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, he is at the house of Machir, son of Amiel in Lodebar. So let me paraphrase that. He lives in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> he, he's in a place that nobody goes to or visits. He lives in the flyover part of the country. He, he, he's, he's not on the East Coast. He's not on the West Coast. He's not in the beautiful foothills. This guy, he's out there. I don't know. Anybody ever driven on this two-lane road to Las Vegas? What is that highway? And you just see, you know what I'm talking about. One of you, two of you know what I'm talking about. This is where he lives. He lives out off that two-lane highway in Nevada. He lives nowhere. No one knows he exists. But David wants him. Verse 5, so David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Machir, son of Amiel. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. This is what you do in the presence of a king. Then or now, if you, you know, we don't live in a kingdom, but if you, you live in a, in a country where there's a king, you bow down, you pay honor. Mephibosheth does that. David says to him, Mephibosheth, he had to have his name written out too, I think, just to say it right, just to get it out. Mephibosheth, your servant, he replied. Behold, I'm your servant. And then David says, don't be afraid. Now, if you know what ancient kingdoms are like, that's an important word to be said. Because what is expected when you live in the middle of nowhere Nobody comes and visits you. Nobody's interested in you. Nobody knows that you're alive. You're a crippled person. And the king of Israel brings you to the palace. I, it, the text doesn't say it, but in, in light of this, these words, do not be afraid. I think Mephibosheth may have thought, this is the end for me. I'm going to be killed. We don't want the Saul-eyed dynasty to regain the throne, and so the king is going to take me out. But David says, don't be afraid. He says, for I will surely show you kindness, hesed, God's kindness, for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul. He's not referring to the territory of the nation of Israel. He's referring to the land that would have been passed down generation after generation. You're getting the property that someone else now has that once belonged to Saul. And more than that, you will always eat at my table. So if you want a definition of what hesed is, what God's kindness is that we're reading about, there's your definition. An outrageous expression of love. You say, what is the definition? The definition, this dude who's been living in the middle of nowhere, no one knows he exists, he's lame in both feet, he just became a super wealthy person because of David's love for Jonathan decades ago and a promise he made, you're getting all the property that Saul once had and you're going to eat at my table. This is a picture of God's love. Working 
through a friendship. That is a friendship between Jonathan and David that has ceased many decades ago. But that relationship, that love, that God-centered love between these two men is coming out and is being poured out in an outrageous and beautiful and excessive way. You're getting property and you're going to eat at the king's table. This is beautiful. This is beautiful. God's kindness is a gospel theme in which we all need to grow. We want the Bible to read us. We should be asking ourselves now, who is it that God would have me show outrageous love to? This is outrageous love. Now, we're not a king. We can't say, hey, you're going to get 100 acres up in Nevada County. That would be kind of cool to say, be able to do that. I'm going to give you a bunch of property up in the Tahoe Basin. I'm going to bless you. And if you are king, you're going to eat at my table. God's kindness is a gospel theme in which we all need to grow. So what I'm saying is, this Hebrew word hesed, this, this God's kindness is related to the love of God, which is the theme of the gospel. And the gospel is something that we are to be oriented to. We look at this verse a lot, Galatians 2.14, when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. What does that mean? That means that the gospel has a bunch of lines or a bunch of themes. And we are to act and to live in light of those themes. So a mature Christian is not someone who can identify Mephibosheth, although that might be helpful. I'm not putting that down. A mature Christian who is who is someone who is living out hesed, someone who is living out this God-centered, outrageous love that finds people in the middle of nowhere and loves them in an extraordinary way because God has led you to do that. Is there someone that God has on your heart that you need to reach out to and love? David had someone, and he shows him this outrageous love, giving him all this property and eating at his table. Imagine this dude. He's living somewhere off the highway of whatever highway it is that's going to Las Vegas. That This is what's in my mind where he lives. He lives in the middle of nowhere. He doesn't eat fancy food. He doesn't go to a palace to dine. And David's saying, this is what your life is now. This is what your life is now. You don't need to be afraid. I'm giving you all this and you will always eat at my table. That's quite a statement. The closest thing we got to this table in a palace of a king might be uh, eating at the White House. This was at a state dinner of our previous president with the uh, Prime Minister of Australia, Scott Morrison, and his wife, Jenny. There's a picture of our current president. This is at a dinner. This is at a dinner with French President um, Emmanuel Macron and his wife, Brigitte. This is an outrageous kind of meal to go to. Now, not only would Mephibosheth be going to stately dinners at the palace in Jerusalem. State dinners, if you will. Not only will he be going to those, but you're there every day. 
You're welcome at my table every day. You're part of my family. You're going to sit along with me and my sons. He's going to say it again later in the chapter. This is a picture of God's love, or to be more precise, of God's kindness or his loving kindness, this, this hessed sort of love. It is an outrageous kind of love. To help us get a picture of this, we're not talking about an ordinary kind of kindness. You know, if somebody, if you're having dinner and you see, um, I don't know, we have any salsa hogs here? <laughs> you like the salsa near you? This is kind of a confession. Um, but let's say you happen to notice a family member who would like some of that salsa that's near you. And so to be kind, you kind of slide that salsa, maybe equidistant, but maybe a little closer to you, to that person. That, 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 that's kindness, okay? That's kindness. It's a good thing. We should do that. This is not what this chapter is about. This chapter is about a different kind of kindness. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll share some salsa afterward. But this chapter is about radical, God-centered love that's excessive and beautiful and outrageous and moves people from living in the middle of nowhere as a cripple, nobody even knows you exist, to you are sitting at the king's table in fine clothes, eating fine food because of God's love that was present in this friendship between Jonathan and David. And David remembered as, as everything is dialed in and life is going well and he's sitting in the palace and going back to chapter 9 and verse 1, he remembers, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul? I made a promise to do hesed to them. And I don't even know if they exist. This is the kind of kindness, God's kindness that we're talking about, if we want to use an English word. We're not talking about being polite and moving the salsa. We're talking about something that's outrageous. Getting a massive amount of property. Of, of, of sitting at the king's table like you are one of his sons. You know, kindness is human taught. We teach our children to... to pass things around the table so someone doesn't have to get up or reach across people. Kindness is, is human taught, but God's kindness is spirit rot. Do you know that word rot? Something that God does in you by his creative artistry. That God wants you to show this kind of gospel kindness, this outrageous love, to someone else. It's different than just normal kindness. Kindness is expected. You know, my family lets me know if the salsa is close to me and if I kind of have like a, a, use my plate as like a dividing wall, like a cover to keep them away from it. Kindness is expected. But God's kindness is sometimes actually thought of as offensive. What do I mean by offensive? Well, let's go to the New Testament in our minds. We won't turn there. The parable of the two lost sons, known as the parable of the prodigal son. The younger son is shown an outrageous amount of God's kindness. Those of you that maybe don't know the story, he's Cheated his father, essentially, taken all of his money, lived a party lifestyle, 
dishonored the family name. He, he, he's been more than a wild child. He's been in your face, this is what I'm going to go do. See you later, Dad. I'm not going to live the, the way that you wanted me to live. What happens? He repents. He's humbled. And he actually gets a clean heart. And he comes home. And the father in the story represents God the Father and his outrageous love. And what does he do? He gives him a list of things he needs to do to be welcomed back. Is that what he does? He throws a party. Slaughters the best animal. Gets out the fine clothes. They, they, they look something like this. When the wild child comes home. When he comes home, his older brother is really happy about it, isn't he? He's offended. He's offended at this outrageous love. It is a picture of the love of Jesus. And that love of Jesus is to be at work in us. And that love of God was at work in the friendship of Jonathan and David. And it is coming out decades later and landing in such a gracious and beautiful way to Mephibosheth. So we want to be kind people. We want to share the salsa. But that's not what this chapter is about. This chapter is about the God's kindness. It is about uh, the, the, the circle on the right. And that is what he wants us to have remain in us from this word today. Let's finish up these last few verses. We've made it through verse 7. We have 8 through 13. Look at verse 8. So here's Mephibosheth bows down. And look at his response. He's been told about this lavish love, expression of love, what you're going to get, eating at the king's table, all of this property. What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? You know, David used the same term decades ago to describe himself. This is someone, and we've all been there, who thinks really lowly in an unhealthy way about themselves. You've probably been there where you feel just lame. You feel unworthy. There are other people who are worthy. I'm not one of them. I'm like a dead dog. David felt this way. You remember, David didn't even get invited to the lineup of who was going to be king. You remember that? So he had this low, unhealthily low view of himself. Mephibosheth is a cripple. No one even knows he exists. He lives out in the middle of Nevada. Nobody visits him. He says, what, 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 what am, who am I? I am like a dead dog. David, when he used that same term, dead dog, he went further and said, I'm also like a flea. Like he had to go further. <laughs> I'm, I'm like a flea. This is an unhealthy view of self. Verse 9. So the king summoned Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, so, so I picture this going on in front of the person who has too low a view of himself. I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul, Saul's grandson, Mephibosheth, and his family. Verse 10, 
you and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops. So now, not only does he get the land, not only does he eat at the king's table, but he's now an administrator of a corporate farm in today's language. And Ziba is, and his men and his boys are going to work for Mephibosheth. Back to the text. So that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, uh, Saul. These are, these are people from the... We don't think about the importance of family the way they did in the ancient world. So you are forever part of this household of Saul, this dynasty, this family. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, Saul, will always eat at my table in the palace. Whether we're wearing tuxedos or we're in our normal clothes, He's at my table. And then the, the author, we don't know who wrote it, but the omniscient narrator, the author of 2 Samuel says, now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. So Ziba has a lot of authority and wealth, and he is now reporting to Mephibosheth, who lived out in a single wide trailer in the middle of Nevada. This is quite a change. And what does this change bring? To Mephibosheth, a crippled man, it brings dignity. Where does that dignity 